This is 112BK coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, an expert on mental illness and gun violence to talk about mass shootings. The originator of the Me Too movement. And remember Michael from Good Times? He'll be here. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us today. Great show. We're going to do it. We're going to talk about gun policy. And I don't care what anyone says about it not being the right time. And then, Tarana Burke, the woman who created the Me Too movement, will join us. And then, some really special guests to talk about upcoming events this weekend in theater and dance. Now, I have what's kind of an existential question for me. Why is it around Thanksgiving time stores have pre-made pumpkin pie and not pre-made sweet potato pie, when sweet potato pie is clearly the superior pie? Just asking. If you have an answer, let me know. Okay, a couple things. Some Brooklyn children have lead levels higher than kids in Flint, Michigan. That was the headline of a WNYC story based on reporting by Reuters, which used data from state health departments and the Center for Disease Control. The article states that despite the city's decent record of reducing kids' exposure, there were some pockets, particularly in South Williamsburg, where levels of exposure are unacceptably high. The neighborhood is home to the ultra-Orthodox Satmar community, where old housing stock, higher than average levels of poverty, and the Yiddish-English language barrier, preventing officials from doing adequate outreach, are the suspected factors. So here, as opposed to Flint, it's an issue with lead paint, not lead in the water. And if you're concerned about lead paint in your home, you can file a complaint with 311 and that'll get the process started. As promised yesterday, NYC's 100 worst landlords, according to the Public Advocates Office. Now, we're not gonna go over all 100, but wouldn't that be fun? The top two violators in Brooklyn are Jonathan Cohen Silvershore Properties with 188 units, mostly in Brooklyn, and more than 1,000 housing code violations and 15 building code violations. They're number one. Below them at number five citywide is Eric Silverstein, also with several properties in Brooklyn and several violations. What are these violations? Oh, vermin, heat and hot water issues. And in at least one instance this year, Gas was shut off and meters were removed at a Silver Shore property because of alleged illegal gas work being performed. Speaking of real estate, a real estate company, Hotspot Rentals, just named two Brooklyn neighborhoods in its list of the top five hottest hoods in the country. Number five, Sunset Park, and number two, Bushwick. Among the considerations were walkability, transit, lifestyle, entertainment, and weather. The closest neighborhood in LA if we're to rate ourselves against LA, was Silver Lake at 14. Now, this is not a definitive study, and their algorithm says nothing about demand or rising prices. But it's what they suggest makes a neighborhood cool. Or is it hot? Wait, you can't have it both ways. Or can you? And this just in. China could sell Trump the Brooklyn Bridge, according to Thomas Friedman in the New York Times. Really? Well. That would be cool. Trump really needs a win, and buying one of the country's most iconic symbols in its most important city could really be a shot in the arm for a president whose poll numbers are, well, underwater. He could adorn it with his name in at least half a dozen places. It's that big. It could get some gilded stanchions, and he could fly the flag of Trump. I see a banner with a fluttering orange hairpiece. And take down that red, white, and blue thing with all the stars. 
He could even charge tolls to all the bikers and pedestrians to pay for the tax cuts for the wealthy. But I didn't know that China actually owned the Brooklyn Bridge. Wait, what? Oh, that was a joke? It was Friedman calling Trump out as a fool who'll buy whatever China will sell and then call it a victory while he gets embarrassingly outmaneuvered on the world stage? Oh, okay, well, that makes more sense. Up next, crafting narratives around mass shootings in ways that demonize anyone not white. Don't go away. According to Mass Shooting Tracker, there have been 391 mass shootings this year. At this rate, that number is likely to be inaccurate by the time you tune in. According to the service, a mass shooting is defined by any incident of violence in which four or more people are shot. Politicians often say it's not time to talk about guns and policy after these events, but that's a lot of crap. We need to have this conversation. I need to have this conversation. So we're starting now with a preeminent expert on guns and mental illness, Brooklyn resident and Vanderbilt University professor Jonathan Metzl. Thanks for coming on 112VK. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So the first thing I want to talk about is your piece, When the Gunman is White, in which you assert that when the gunman is white, obviously, um, politicians, people who make statements, uh, often say it's a lone wolf. It's someone who was unstable. They invoke the need for, you know, better care for people with mental health issues. Can you expound on that a little bit? Sure. Well, it's interesting. It, it, it ties directly into what you said in the lead-in, which is that there's this sense after a mass shooting that we don't want to politicize this issue, that politics should be left aside for a moment. And it, mm -hmm. certainly, this is a narrative that's furthered by mm -hmm. the media and leading politicians now and, and other people. But it turns out that, of course, a mass shooting represents a searing individual-level tragedy. Lives are lost. Families and communities are changed forever. Mm -hmm. But the ways we talk about mass shootings as a society is deeply political from the moment that they happen on down. And certainly, it has to do with conversations about guns and gun rights. Right. But also, there are different narratives in which we t tell the story about mass death in this country based on automatic and often unconscious associations between the link between kind of the shooter and how we mm -hmm. identify the, the, the body of that person and larger cultural issues. And so what I did in the Washington Post piece that you're uh, talking about when the shooter is white is I just tried to track the very different cultural responses that happen depending on the identity of the shooter. And basically what I talk about is that um, if the shooter is a lone white male gunman, which is often what we're seeing in these high-profile mass shootings, mm -hmm. that immediately there's a move, obviously, by President Trump and other people we saw after Texas and after Las Vegas to say, these are, this is the act of an individually deranged white mind. This is, right. a, this is the problem of a, an individual white brain. It's not a problem of culture, society, context. And Trump said that quite literally after the Texas shooting. This isn't a gun problem. This is a lone mental illness problem. Yep. But on the other hand, when the shooter or, or mass killer is someone who's uh, a person of color from a community of color, from a community that we see as a high-risk community or something, mm -hmm. all of a sudden the narrative is about, is about the culture, the context, that this is right. a deranged culture. And obviously terrorism is one narrative that we tell. Um, and, but there are, other, there are others that we've seen through time. That like really, how about Chicago? Exactly, mm -hmm. Chicago and gang <laughs> violence. But there's, uh, what I show in the piece is that actually there's a long history 
uh, of that kind of association. Mm -hmm. That in the 60s and 70s, when people like Huey Newton and Rat Brown, Stokely Carmichael, right. Malcolm X were saying, um, we, need, we need arms, mm -hmm. that in a way people said, this is a problem of black culture. This is a problem of black culture. It's not a problem of the individual. And they weren't even, they weren't even shooting anybody. And so I think what I show is really there's a long history of this dichotomy in which we blame white minds, but black or minority or Muslim cultures. And of course, that leads to very different cultural responses. When, when it's just one individual, mm -hmm. it's like there's nothing we can do because it's an individual. Right. But if it's a culture, then you all of a sudden it mobilizes blocking immigration or mm -hmm. cracking down on cultures or things like that. And so really this narrative of race really shapes the way that we interpret mass shootings. So what is the profile of a mass shooter? Well, it's again, it's complicated, mm -hmm. as you say, because there are different kinds of mass shootings. Yes. Um, a mass shooting is, as you were mentioning in the introduction, four or more strangers uh, mm -hmm. often killed. Um, and what we see in the media are these kind of high profile, high profile mass shootings that are mm -hmm. often caused, uh, just statistically speaking, by gun-owning, often white men um, who have a history of uh, numerous things in their past, but mental illness actually isn't, hasn't been atop the list. Uh, what we've seen recently is a history of domestic, domestic use, domestic, domestic abuse, and, and factors mm -hmm. like that. But certainly there, this demographic of kind of the middle-aged angry man is, is the kind of synchronon right. of this high-profile mass shooting. The problem is that there are a lot of mass shootings that never make it to the news. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly any kind of you know, any kind of shooting in, in Chicago or uh, other factors like that. So in other words, this idea of four or more strangers. Right. And so part of the issue is there's just a higher bar to get on the news in any case. But certainly, on one hand, people think all mass shooters are white. But I like to tell people it's actually the mass shootings that get on the news mm -hmm. that where the mass shooter is white because it's often a white shooter and white victims, which is mm. sensationalized in a particular way. So one of the things when people bring up the mental illness factor. Mm -hmm. And when they say these are just ill people, these are just deranged people, what does that mean when you have someone like Stephen Paddock who clearly, clearly premeditated his attack, um, extensively researched and made plans? Mm -hmm. Does that belie like, the idea that this person you know, just sort of freaked out? Well, this is a lot of what I deal, I deal with in my research are these questions of the relationships between mental illness and not just mass shootings, but also gun violence. And so right. on one hand, let me just say empathically, I understand why people turn to questions of mental illness in the aftermath of mass shootings. Mm -hmm. I mean, one reason is who but a crazy person would kill innocent people. It just makes sense to us in a way that it becomes right. our way of talking about it. And certainly there are biographical histories of mass shooters a lot of times that have some aspect of some kind of symptom of depression or substance use or mild psychosis, things like that in their past history. So I'm not saying that it's completely a non sequitur. Mm -hmm. The problem is that then we say, like President Trump did after the Texas shooting, a, ma a mental illness is what caused this mass shooting. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And certainly that's where the logical leap is incorrect as far as um, I would argue and other mm -hmm. people who study this. And it's incorrect for a number of reasons. One, just on a very factual level, there's no mental illness diagnosis whose symptoms include attacking or shooting other people. And if you right. think about the main mental illnesses like depression or schizophrenia, they often cause people to withdraw from society, not to engage with it. And mm -hmm. so they're much more likely to be at home <laughs> or right. you know, things like that. Also, very severe mental illness creates a kind of mental disorganization that makes it hard to premeditate a crime like a high-profile mass shooting. Right. Um, and so partially, it's just factually untrue. Mm -hmm. um, persons with mental illness are actually more likely than the national average to be the victims of shootings because they, because they appear odd or things like mm -hmm. that. So in a way, it taps into this stereotype of kind of the crazy mentally ill person who's violent. But statistically speaking, that's, that's completely not true. And the other right. factor, I think the more important one, um, is also that when you call it mental illness, you lose sight of all the other factors that contribute to mass shootings, like right. access to guns, gun accessibility, um, history, other kinds of histories of alcoholism or mm -hmm. domestic violence, um, just the whole big cultural factor that I think in a way leads to this question of kind of as a society, why is this happening to us? So when we isolated right. on one person's brain, mm -hmm. we're really we're telling an incredibly oversimplified story that doesn't get at the question we all want to know, which is how can we prevent this? Sounds like America. Um, can you tell me, do you know of anything that's being done to change this situation? Any legislation, mm -hmm. any policy talks, um, and especially anything specific to our home right here in New York? Absolutely. Well, again, I, the, the, the thing that drives me crazy as somebody mm -hmm. who studies this is this assumption that, oh, because it's just the act of a lone crazy person, what could anybody possibly do? And that really couldn't be farther from the truth. Right. Um, so first, let me point out that mass shootings are horrible, they're horrific. Um, Unfortunately, they're only a small fraction of the overall gun death in the mm -hmm. United States. We have about 38,000 gun deaths a year in the United States, and yeah. most are not mass shootings. Most are just everyday kinds of violence, um, you know, domestic, accidental, homicide. Mm -hmm. A huge portion of that is also gun suicide. And so if you want to stop gun death across the country, Certainly, there are things we know would be effective. You mm -hmm. know, a nationally mandated uh, background check system that's enforced, um, identifying high-risk people through a kind of vetting process, like we do with um, driver's license, for example. Right. Um, and so, if somebody's at risk because they've got a past history of violence, a past history of domestic abuse, a history of severe substance abuse, those people probably shouldn't have firearms in a way. And so, if there was a national system uh, that was effective. Unfortunately, the system now is unbelievably ineffective, and the reason is because up to 30% of gun sales aren't even part of the background check system because they're in the in in this what's called the gun show private private yes. sale loophole. So mm -hmm. that's part of it. And then New York is, I think, a very important example right now because one of the things that the corporate gun lobby is pushing right now is something called um, national concealed carry reciprocity, and mm -hmm. the whole idea is that. States like New York, which have a history of, on one hand, respecting the Second Amendment, but also because we're a dense urban area, uh, because it's a public safety issue, we really regulate who, you know, the, the numbers and types of guns in our area. Right. 
And, and the issue is, what they're pushing is to overturn that and to say that there's a national right to carry guns. So if I'm coming from Tennessee or another state that has very loose gun laws, mm -hmm. I should be able to bring a suitcase full of 20 Glocks or semi-automatics in here and be, be um, governed not by the laws of New York, but by the laws of my home state. And it's not wow. just that we're gonna have a lot of heavily armed tourists at you know Times Square, New Year's Eve, or something like that. The other issue is that this floods urban areas where it's often harder to get a gun with mm -hmm. weapons, and then it becomes also a gun trafficking issue, a gun sale issue. And so I think the implications of this reciprocity, which is uh, number one on the NRA agenda right now, is gonna have huge, huge implications. And for where does that stand right now? Sorry to interrupt. Absolutely, there's a bill that's in, that's in front of Congress and it's been put on hold um, because of the mass shootings. And so there's a kind of lull in the, in the issue. But I, I think going forward, this idea of this idea of gun rights across state lines, which is mm -hmm. ironic because you would think that conservative politics is based states on- States' rights. States' rights, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the anti-states' rights. This is saying states don't have the right uh, to mandate uh, or to regulate their own, their own, it's not even their own you know, laws, it's their own like requirements for permits and things like right. that for who can, so I think that will have huge implications for New York. Oh. Um, and well, then I could go on, there's a lot more. <laughs> I know, we're yeah. actually out of time. Okay. I'm so sorry that we are, but I really appreciate you being My here. My pleasure. And I hope we can have you back sometime to Anytime, continue please. this conversation. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd Thank be great. you. Up next, the originator of the Me Too movement, before there was Twitter. In October, the Me Too hashtag went viral as a rallying cry for women and men speaking or tweeting out about sexual assault and harassment in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein allegations. But the phrase had long been put into parlance by social activist Tarana Burke, a survivor herself who's a senior director at Girls for Gender Equity. And she's here today to talk about her movement and its origins. Thank you so much for being here, Tarana. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, I just wanted to ask you, because this is a conversation that a lot of women around me are having, and more and more men as well. Um, are we at a crossroads? Is that what's happening right now? With all of the allegations coming out with the many, many, many women, and now many men who are speaking up about these things, are we at a tipping point where hopefully we can't come back from? I think so. I, you know, I think like everybody else early on, I was watching and, and seeing how this was progressing. But I mm -hmm. think at this point, we are in a month, uh, a month into this uh, moment, and it is definitely not stopping. It doesn't seem to be slowing down. And right. there are actual changes that are starting to happen, um, including people, more and more disclosures coming forth. So I yeah. think that a culture shift is happening around the way people disclose their experience with sexual violence which is important. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these more high-profile stories, though, have women and men who are celebrities yes. behind them. What does that mean for people who don't have the social platform or feel like they don't have the social platform to come forward and be believed or heard? Well, you know, I think that having celebrities be at the forefront of this, uh, mm -hmm. that was the way it got opened up, right? That right. was the way the attention was, was brought to the, to the issue. But, you know, in the last four weeks, there's been over 12 million people across social media who have engaged with, and, and 85 countries who've engaged with this, the Me Too hashtag. Wow. And so that's a wow. lot of everyday people on the ground who are sharing stories, who are a part of this growing community of survivors who are out here really trying to support one another. 
And how do we make sure that those disenfranchised voices, these people from marginalized backgrounds and communities, that their stories do get lifted up just yeah. as much as people who we would, you know, recognize just from name recognition? Well, see, that's the trick, right? We have to, historically, we know that we have to insert ourselves in those conversations yes. because people will not automatically yes. think to, um, to, to look to the fringes and the people who are marginalized. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that I try to do in, in being a voice in this movement or at this moment is, is to make sure that those voices are centered and that those are the people that, we, that I stay focused on. And I think it's gonna take a laser focus on that group of, you know, us, <laughs> this mm -hmm. group of people, um, in order for folks to, to remember that we have the largest numbers of, uh, when it comes to sexual violence and sexual assault, yes. assault it's largely people of color, women of color. Yes. And so it's going to be, people have to be really intentional or else it won't, it won't happen. Absolutely. Are there any organizations right here in Brooklyn that you could think of if someone is dealing with this, if they're looking for a way to come forward, if they're just looking for someone to talk to that they can go to? Yeah, there's, there's, I believe there's a rape crisis center in mm -hmm. Brooklyn. It might be more than one, so I apologize for not having the name. But there are also organizations that deal with street harassment. My mm -hmm. organization deals with it. it, it we are mm -hmm. not an organization that gives out individual help, but um, Hollaback is an organization that's also based here in Brooklyn. Right. Um, and they deal with, with street harassment. <laughs> <Whew>. Sorry. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that. Do you want to just get back into it? Okay. Sorry yeah. about that. I'm sorry, I should have had some <laughs> organizations ready to say, but. No, that's okay. Talk yeah. to me about how your organization specifically helps people, because I'm not on an individual basis, yeah. not like that, um, but is it just broader policy? Is it broader programs mm -hmm. that help people in these communities before we even get to that place? Well, so we are youth focused. Mm -hmm. So um, Girls for Gender Equity is an organization. It's, it is intergenerational in some ways, but our focus, our large focus is on, is on young people. Mm -hmm. And so we do leadership development with young um, girls and cis, cis, trans, and gender nonconforming youth of color around civic engagement, uh, community organizing, and mm -hmm. issues on gender and racial equality, or right. gender and racial equity. Yeah. Um, and so that, so we have three programs, and mm -hmm. we have a policy division. Our programs are, we have a traditional, what would be called a traditional after-school program, our Urban Leaders Academy. Mm -hmm. And it's in Brooklyn, we're at two schools, we're at um, New Visions Charter School in yeah. Brooklyn, which is the mm -hmm. old Sheepshead Bay High School. Yep. And we're at um, Junior High School 78. Mm -hmm. And so we have, that's our largest program, Urban Leaders Academy. And it's an after-school program that does regular, you know, photography and, and martial arts and things like that. But we have a social justice lens that we do, we, we work through. So the young people have to go through a curriculum before they start any of the extracurricular stuff. So they wow. go through a... Um, Basically, we, we try to raise their analysis around issues of social justice. Good. So we, we talk about everything from rape culture to police brutality, really trying to give them a way to which, a lens to, now, to um, analyze today's mm -hmm. news and what they see in the media. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have our um, Sisters in Strength program, which also all three of the programs take the same curriculum. Okay. And so uh, our Sisters in Strength program is focused on community organizing. Okay. So these are young, mostly girls from Brooklyn, um, again, cis, trans, and gender nonconforming youth who are invested in the issues that are in their communities, and so we give them tools to organize around those issues. 
Uh, and then we have our Young Women's Advisory Council, which mm -hmm. grew out of uh, the Young Women's Initiative, the national the national initiative that was um, partnered to my brother's keeper when, right. when Obama did that. Mm -hmm. And um, Young Women's Advisory Council is about civic engagement. Right. So we have about 25 young, young also mm -hmm. um, cis, trans, and gender non-conforming youth of color who are part of that program, and they go through a training on how to do things like participatory budgeting. They learn about testifying in front of um, right. city council and, and things like that. How did this become your passion? Because oh, I'm a black girl. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I've worked with youth my whole life. Mm -hmm. I came up through an organization um, that was very dear to me, the 21st Century Youth Leadership Movement. Mm -hmm. And that organization, is, it was national. They were based in Alabama, but uh, I was in the New York, the New York chapter. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing I organized around at 14 years old was the Central Park Jocker case. Wow. I'm, I know I'm dating myself. <laughs> no, I'm just like. By saying that. But yeah, we were young youth leaders and we mm -hmm. felt like, and some of us knew like Yusef Muhammad and were connected to some of the young men. And we felt like the portrayal of these men in the media was wrong and disparaging. And so we held a press conference and we organized other young people. Mm -hmm. And I just had a, it just lit a spark in me that said, I'm. 14, but I'm out here. I can do something about it. Right. I have a voice. I can raise my voice, and things happen when that happens. And, and that just... spark has like stayed with you for oh, yeah. a lifetime. I got that's, a lot to say. That's amazing. <laughs> like, which is good. We need more women like you saying more. Mm -hmm. So, how do we make sure that the Me Too movement, all of this, how do we make sure this doesn't peter out? How do we make sure that you know this isn't just another thing that becomes a trendy thing to talk yeah. about for a while, and then it goes away. So here's the thing, right? The, my work, the way I talk about Me Too, is Me Too is a movement. Mm -hmm. And we know that movements are extended. They, are, they, are, they happen over time. And there right. are ups and downs, challenges and triumphs. Mm -hmm. I look at this moment as a triumph in the overall movement. Right. And so it will die down. I mm -hmm. absolutely expect us to not be talking about Me Too in six months, right? Right. I think the, it's in the lexicon now, so people will use it as a way to discuss sexual violence. But really, it's about people being committed to the work. And right. there are a wealth of people out here already very much committed to this work. Mm -hmm. And so we've, we have a, sh a slight shift in culture, which I think will stay. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have, from this moment, we'll garner more people into, in the fight to end gender-based violence. And so Good. that's really what it's about. Anything Excellent. we can do to bring attention to that is what it's about. Well, Tarana, thank you so much for being here today. I thank really you. appreciate it. Thank it's you. A very important me. conversation. Oh, thank you. Coming up, supporting community theater, arts and dance in the city. To end on a lighter note, let's talk about dance and the arts. We have two guests to tell us about events coming up this weekend that are focused on both. Patricia Robinson with the really fun event, Stars of New York Dance. Thanks for joining us Absolutely. on 112BK. And Ralph Carter, board member of the Adelco Awards. And Michael from Good Times, of course. Great to have you here as Thank well. Thank you, Ashley. Thank, Thank you. you. Glad so, to be here. Let's start with Patricia. Yeah. Tell me more about the organization you represent Absolutely. and what you guys are up to. So before I even start, it would be just crazy to continue this interview without saying what an honor it is to be sitting next to this man, Ralph Carter. Like, it is truly an honor and a privilege. Same. I grew up in Brooklyn, 10 minutes away from the new brick in mm -hmm. Farragut Houses, watching you as a kid. Today, as a grown woman, 
I'm still watching you. Oh, thank you. So Jesus. to sit here and to have the opportunity to sit next to him and what he's meant in my life is significant. So thank you so much. I almost fell out when I had the opportunity to know that we were going to do this. On behalf of our cast, we thank you. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So I am participating in Stars of New York Dance. Um, my name is Pat Robinson. I'm the Director of Operations and Human Resources for Hot 97, WBLS, and WLIB. I was approached about six months ago in reference to this organization that puts on this awesome fundraiser to raise money for culture and arts for schools that do not have budgets. And I readily accepted, not knowing what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been the last three months of rehearsing and dancing, but for, all for a great cause. The event is tomorrow night, November 17th, at the Cumble Theater. I am super excited. There are about seven or eight participants that will dance to compete. And while it's a dance competition, nonetheless, the event is sold out, which is exactly what we want. Yes. We want it at capacity. We want to raise funds. We want to get the exposure out. And I definitely just want to acknowledge Cheryl Todman, who's the executive director of Stars of New York Dance, because this kind of thing is really important for our communities. This kind of thing is really important for exposure. Absolutely. And we need our corporate offices. We need people to come from behind their desk and get involved in the community events. Absolutely. So who's dancing? So I'm dancing tomorrow. Dancing. I am dancing tomorrow, so I've been rehearsing. Yes. So this, to me, has been just the pre-interview with oh, him and just spending time yes. has given me life. So I'm just going to go and win that competition. Wouldn't you say that? It's already done. Okay, it's there we go. It's already done. So tell me more about your involvement. First of all, I would like to thank your company and your show for the opportunity to speak on behalf of the Adelco Awards. We're so happy to have you. Yes. Our president is Miss Grace Jones, the original as we call her. Mm -hmm. She presently is the president of the Adelco Awards and we are celebrating the 45th year anniversary oh, of this fantastic wow. organization which began in 1973. Mm -hmm. The reason for it developing as it has because there was a void in theater as far as celebrating people of color, especially mm -hmm. African-American men and women in the arts, African-American lighting directors, scenic designers, costume designers. Mm -hmm. We had to celebrate them. So right. a group of wonderful women got together, Miss Mary Davis, Miss Rosa Bland. We also had Grace Jones, as I'm mentioning, but the mm -hmm. founding and the founder of it was um, a wonderful woman named Vivian Robinson. Mm -hmm. So these women would categorically go to theater. Right. And I mean, they was like, these sisters is in the trenches. And they would go wherever African-American theater was, you would find them. Right. And out of that, they would see productions and pick the beautiful bouquet of flower talent wow. that was up in there. So yeah. I mean, we're talking recipients such as Denzel Washington. One of his first awards he's ever spoken of was his Adelco Award. Wow. Lawrence Fishburne is a recipient of the Adelco Awards. Right. I'm a double recipient of the Adelco Award. Wow. And I had no idea that life would allow me to participate and be able to bring more new artists. Mm -hmm. Because I do believe what Patricia says is very fundamentally clear. If you give people the art, they will come. Yes, people will come to see the show. Well, your event is sold out. It's so sold obviously out. people will come people if will they come. just know about it yeah. and they know that the opportunity right. is there to make it happen and to attend yeah. and to support yeah. things that they actually care about. And as a veteran of theater, I, before I did my work on Good Times, my background is American theater. 
And primarily in the early 70s, I began in a play called The Me Nobody Knows. Mm -hmm. And subsequently, from The Me Nobody Knows, I did six major Broadway productions after wow. that. Amazing. Every American theater award you can imagine I've received within the tri-state area. I am a recipient of the Tony Award nomination. I am a recipient of the Theater World Award mm. and the Drama Desk Award. Wow. These are all before 12. Wow. So what I did was wow. gather that information because I had a chance to work. I'm telling you, Ashley, I had so much fun working with women and men. We're mm. talking Pearl Bailey and Sammy Davis Jr., Lena Horne. Those girls were fun. Yeah. <laughs> she really is. I mean, she was. Eartha yes. Kitt Purd. Yes. You know, you had your Raymond Say Jocks and Roscoe mm. Lee Brown. Enormous, wonderful talents. I mean, these right. names were big names, and to actually see them run through our camaraderie on good times, mm -hmm. it was awesome. How has the industry changed since your time on Good Times? And would you say it's changed, like, for the better or worse? I think the polarization still exists, and yeah. I think that people, if given an opportunity, can reach beyond the so-called glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. I think also no one is responsible for our welfare. Mm -hmm. If we're going to do anything, be quiet and get it done. I agree. Back yeah. in 1973, when the Adelco Awards were about to manifest, the women just decided, let's do this. I right. mean, their little awards were just that, a little award and a plaque. Mm -hmm. And now we have a beautiful trophy. Mm -hmm. You know, we have E. Curtis Farrell, who is one of our executive directors, helping us with the process, as he's been doing for quite some time. Mm -hmm. You know, he does those big, beautiful gospel productions yes. on a yearly basis. Mm -hmm. Yes. So his participation has been consistent, along with his team. Mm -hmm. But his team and our team, we unified together so that on November the 20th, which is a Monday, we have mm -hmm. to do Mondays, because that's when theater is dark. And right. some of our actors are participating on shows right now. Mm -hmm. However, as we celebrate them, we need that Monday. It's yes. always the third for future calendar guys. Mm -hmm. It's always the third Monday mm -hmm. in November. Always. And this year happens to be the celebration of the year number 45. Wow. And I'm deeply proud because I really and, and got invited. Yeah. I'm gonna you got invited? You're gonna oh, be there? Take ticket with your name on it. Yeah. <laughs> You know. I'll be there. Patricia, yeah. tell me, how do you go from, you know, such a, a strong uh, corporate background to being involved in the arts this way? Because yes. a lot of people see those as living in completely yeah. different areas. Well, well, I work in radio, so mm -hmm. here's the thing. At the end of the day, music is culture, it's influence, it influences our lifestyle and influences everything that we, we do. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has allowed me to grow over the years is the ability to dream and hope. Right. And the ability to dream and hope comes through arts, mm -hmm. right? Film, music, right? So it's all, in a way, interconnected. Yes. I didn't set out to be a corporate executive. Mm -hmm. I set out to be the best that I can be. Right, wow. and it just happened to land in this arena of music and arts, mm -hmm. which happened to connect me to people that allowed me to find this amazing organization, Stars mm -hmm. for New York Dance. Wow. And I am so excited that I found it. I'm shameful that I've lived in Brooklyn, born and raised in Brooklyn, and have never heard of it. So I'm so happy that I get an opportunity to share with the world mm -hmm. what this is and what it means. 
Well, as a transplant, I can't tell you how excited I am to know that it exists. Yeah. And next year, before the tickets are sold out, <laughs> I'm going to have my and, ticket. And, here's a, great, and, and here's a great thing is that although the tickets are sold out, you can mm -hmm. still go to www.starsnydance.org and you can donate money. We're Excellent. still absolutely receiving fundraising money for the children. Excellent. Um, and we're super excited. Like, you know, it's not about me and I'm going to... Here's the thing. I'm going to win tomorrow. You're going to win. I put it out there. And even if I happen to not win, the purpose and the execution and what I'm doing and just watching the young adults and the youth, that to me is the true reward. Mm, so yes. I, you know, being a mom, I'm a grandma, all of this great stuff is just, right. you know, we need to come from behind our desks. We need to get out of our comfort zones and mm -hmm. we need to participate in our communities. Thank you both so much Absolutely. for being here. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we'll have you back next year to talk about this. Maybe sometime in between. You're yeah. guys are fun. Yeah. I want you so to be he's back. He's my new friend. He doesn't know it yet. <laughs> right. He's my permanent new friend. But and, he is. And he's amazing. Like I had an opportunity to talk to him outside and He's just organically amazing. I have an inspiration and an awe of everything he represents. I'm so excited to hear about the Adelco Awards. I'm going to be yes. there. So now, guess what? It continues, it right? Continues. It doesn't stop with stars. It now it's it goes on to this. And, and, and Sister it's Robinson, it will be at Symphony Space mm -hmm. on Broadway and 95th Street. Yes. Doors open at 7.30, and we do be on time, y'all. <laughs> So, <laughs> you know, the show's the thing. Say it. You got it. You got it. <laughs> Ain't no CP this no, time. No, 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 no. <laughs> so time, we'll be there. Timing is everything, yes. And we'll be on time. Oh, yes. Thank you Thank so you much. For Thank, you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Monday when Make the Road New York will talk about getting a clean DREAM Act through Congress and how our sanctions on Iran can constrain the recovery from the recent earthquake there. We'll see you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargy, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer, and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Hamasek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.